G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Um, you can leave other reviews to, uh, to more inferior uh, podcasts, probably not veterinary ones, because veterinary ones are tops. Anyway, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to leave us a review. So today we're out of the studio, we've been... Uh, been um, uh, uh, Demoted is probably the, the wrong word, but we've actually been promoted to, to Brian's office. So, uh, so joining uh, Brian and myself um, in his office is uh, our good friend of the pod, Dr. Stefano Cortellini. Thank you, Stefano, for, for joining us at, uh, one might say, at short notice. But um, Yeah, no, th- thank you for inviting me, Dom, and for kidnapping me in the ICU corridor. <laughs> well, under dress, which is always <laughs> always important, I think, uh, particularly on, uh, on, on such lovely days as we, we have today. But I thought what we, we would talk about um, would be, because we've got a lot of, pe- lot of people um, uh, going, going out into the, into the great wide world of, uh, of being a veterinarian so it's uh, it was a finals uh, results day uh, today at the RVC so congratulations um, to everyone who managed to, to get through and uh, and uh, hopefully congratulations to those of you um, listening in the rest of the UK and uh, and uh, good luck with it with it all. So, uh, so what we're going to talk about today, because there's a lot of people going to uh, going to be be out in the in the world, and I think that we we forget it's quite uh, scary in some ways um, when you're the people having actually to make the decisions, and probably more importantly in a emergency situation, because normally what happens are people uh, the clients are kind of heightened, the animal uh, is often in some form of, of distress, and I suppose then we need to have a, a, a clear head probably when we examine these patients, not properly, definitely when we examine these patients. So what I was going to ask uh, Dr. Cortellini to, to help us with today is to think about like the top five things that we need to consider when we're dealing with uh, an emergency patient. So um, so number one, um, we kind of agreed that uh, is to examine the patient. So how, how do you examine patients, Stefano, when... when uh, um, well, so it depends on how busy the room is, isn't it? Like uh, the first thing is having a triage. So like in, a, in one, two minutes, you just want to have uh, a quick assessment, main vitals, and see how urgently you need to see this patient. Um, and th- the question is, is he going to die or not soon? Um, after this, then there's a full exam. I usually tend to go for um, from from nose to tail, um, just because at least it's a sort of systematic approach, and you know, I, peripheral lymph nodes um, or palpable lymph nodes or rectal examination. You may not do this in collapsed patients, but at the end, uh, that those those clinical signs will actually or or, or findings will actually uh, be essential in the treatment of the patient isn't it so uh, i guess in a systematic approach and and the important thing is really taking the time to do the exam uh, the, the examination i think that's the most common mistake that, that that every one of us makes is is doing things concurrently now Everyone's good at multitasking, but I think um, that's not, uh, you used to say, like, <laughs> if you're multitasking, you're not doing any task at all, I think. So, uh, and the clinical exam is, is the essential bit of the uh, medical management. Um, so I think, you know, if you're doing that, not, don't speak to anyone, just concentrate on your findings. Look also what you're, think also what you're looking for. 
not to I guess uh, um, bias your your findings but I mean we only find what we're searching for and so I think that's the important thing thinking about you know what's the presenting complaint and then actually trying also to um, to do a, a physical exam that is standardized but also aiming at that particular problem can, can I ask, um, so when you talk to diagnostic images, so sometimes they say when you're reading a, a radiograph, you look at the look at the obvious thing first, because then your your mind will mm. um, will otherwise be drawn to that the whole time. See, so do you, you know, say if there's an obvious fracture or a limb that is 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 badly mangled or or bad wounds, do you consciously look at those initially and think? I just spitballing here, but is there any obvious bleeding? Anything that I need to focus? Okay, there's not. I'm going to listen to the chest and the heart now. Or do you, yeah. or, or do you just ignore it completely? No, 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 no. Like it's a it's a quick superficial view in the beginning, just to, as you say, make sure that that's not going to be the cause of impending arrest or or, or worsening. Then going to the main major body organs and then actually examining the the wound or the fracture or, or whatever we're concerned of way more in detail taking our time i wouldn't take time in examining a, a wound initially if a patient is in shock what i want is other procedures not even the clinical exam you know like i might actually examine a wound after we place the catheter we started fluids we've given analgesia and then i look at a wound so uh but i think an initial assessment needs to be done just to make sure that we're not missing anything um, that can have dramatic consequences. Yeah, I suppose the only thing uh, that that we we could say if the wound is actively bleeding, yeah. then we need to need to put pressure on that. But again, that's that's really yeah. all we need to do. Or, or if it's an open fracture, you just cover it because obviously, if it gets multi-drug resistant infection from the hospital, we probably want to avoid that. So yeah, no, definitely, it's just trying to, I guess, dedicate the time that it deserves in the context of the patient. So if the patient is dying, maybe we don't need necessarily to, to address this wound unless it's a cause or is a, it's a major do, do you think that you focused it initially when you graduated on the most obvious thing or do you, is it yeah. something you had to teach yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think definitely. And I think also the what, what I didn't even do, like I think my, my common mistakes were either I was focusing too much, so, you know, I was flushing a wound in a patient on shock, that happens because I mean the wound is more obvious. You think, oh, I need to flush the wound. No, you probably need to <laughs> save the patient first, and then you flush the wound. Uh, in the meanwhile, you can just cover it. Uh, but the other thing was also a superficial problem, I think. So, uh, in a superficial approach. So when I got into emergency, I was very much focused, almost in a very short-sighted view, onto major body organs. So like, I need to stabilize cardiovascularly, respiratory, and would actually leave wounds or fractures a little bit um, uh, untreated. Well, not untreated necessarily, but I wouldn't treat them as quickly as I would have I would do now once the patient is stabilized uh, and so I think it's it's just about the right balance so give the right attention to the beginning does it deserve your attention no go on to the major body organs after or, or, or like a bit more of a depth evaluation of the major body organs and then once everything is stable go back to them because I mean not treating a wound can cause a multi-drug resistant infection or or not um, assessing properly 
um, uh, a patient may mean that you're missing important findings that may affect the outcome in the long term. So if you don't tell the patient, the, the, the clients, you know, may have a pelvic fracture or, or an instability of, the, of a limb and they can't afford any surgical, uh, any surgical procedure, then, you know, it's kind of wasting a lot of time and, and money for the clients and actually also emotionally for you and for, for, the, for the clients, but especially then for the patient. Absolutely, absolutely. And that brings us brings us on to uh, so the point number two that we we said to to listen to the the client. Yeah. So we're talking about. So my impression of this is is actually listening to what they say like happened that the for so if we're thinking about an emergency sense whether that is a trauma or an acute presentation of quite a significant disease then we we just need to listen and work out what the actual problem is. Yeah, sorry, can you repeat that again? See? No, I'm joking. So that is, so I guess you had a little bit of a raging uh, impetus inside you, didn't you? And I think that's, that's the problem. Like, we're, when we're in the emergency room, the clients are looking at us as reassuring people. Now, I wouldn't trust a person that's not listening to me. And so that's the first thing. Like, I guess client-vet um, uh, relationship is based on communication. The base of communication is listening and interacting. So that's the first thing. If you're not listening to a client, I think one of the most common mistakes that I was doing was actually repeating the question twice. If I was like, if I, and, and I could actually see how, how um, the clients were reacting, because that's just a, you know, a sign that you're not paying attention. And, and one way would be, one, to have a list of questions that you want to do, especially in the beginning. You know, we may not ask always, has it got PUPD or vomiting or last vaccinated, but you may want to have that thing written somewhere, at least at the beginning of your career. Then it becomes a little bit, you know, you can, you can kind of um, freestyle during the, the, the client, uh, the, well, the history. Um, forgot what I was saying, but yes, no, the, the, I guess the important thing is really listening to the client so that basically the client can then just start trusting you. And that's the first thing. Do you, do you think, think, so for that, sorry to yeah. interrupt. So do you think for that, I was just trying to uh, try and give people like a, like a framework to, to work with. And I suppose that it depends on, on where you work. Like we're, quite like fortunate we have an emergency room and we often take patients there and we assess them um and deal with the clients uh, sort of almost sort of separately but sometimes that separation is quite good because it gives a bit of space and time rather than bringing the client into the emergency room that i know probably has actually mm. some benefits but then you're being bombarded with trying to work out as we said trying to assess the patient but then try and obtain some information from the client as well so sometimes that separation when you can say particularly if you might have another person to help you to i don't know provide oxygen or or um, uh, you know calm the patient down in some way to manage that and then you can speak to the client separately do you think that did, were you Definitely. were you more i suppose it depends on the facilities that you have but i think that when you start off you're quite 
because you're unsure about who's in control of the situation and you need to work out that you are how you deal with it and, and probably as you said how you how you frame your conversations or communication with people so if you said stefano i'm going to have a look at your dog cat right now would you mind just waiting here yeah. for a couple of minutes and i'll be back then that probably allows people a bit of space to know what you're doing but also that you're gonna gonna come back i suppose it does it's probably difficult as well if you're by yourself if you're one on one on one because then actually the client could help you yeah holding the holding patient, the patient. Or, yeah, yeah no absolutely i think that, that that that's very cultural as well like i found in italy like you you probably can't do that like mm. give me your or at least the places where i used to so you always had to get the clients in but maybe there's actually as you say there's actually not enough um Uh, th- there's a different culture where actually the vet should be leading the whole uh, scenario. So when you go to your clients, I guess the first thing would be, yes, pr- introducing yourself. Transparency, first of all, looking into the, the clients into the eyes. You need, they, you need them to trust. Once you've done this one, then you can take the lead and say, you know what, like get a coffee, uh, relax one second, get some, some water. I'm just going to take him. I'm not going to do anything. And, but I just need to assess him and then I'll come back to you if there's anything concerning. And that gives the time for you to examine the patient without having to speak to the client or examining the patient without having the client next to you saying, did you find anything? Is there anything wrong? Oh my God, is that normal? While you're actually trying to concentrate in the clinical exam. And particularly um, when, you're, when you're sort of fresh off the, off the cab rank as it, as it were, because I think that yeah. that's even more, you know, I think it's hard enough in a consultation environment for people to you know you need, you need to work out like what is your plan really rather mm-hmm. than necessarily you might have a diagnosis but really what is your plan to get a diagnosis yeah. in an emergency sense it's it's very uh, palpable that you know people want an answer within you know 10 seconds <laughs> and you're you know haven't even listened yeah. to the heart in that in that fair time. enough and i think you know like getting the patient examining the patient with a clients outside and and relaxing as they will relaxing as much as they can but also yes gives you the time to have a clearer idea don't feel the pressure like i felt a lot of pressure examining the patients in front of the clients initially or maybe me but i think many of us if especially if undergraduate uh, if both just recently post graduated if if you are observed you will have a sort of um anxiety and a line that actually distracts you from the main problem so that can help definitely and uh, yeah so definitely i think it's certainly and but it's all a matter of professional culture like i'm the vet i know what you know what what i need to do you stay here i'll come back when when i have to speak to you to get consent and But, but at least that gives us time and space to, to listen to the client and to find out, you know, what, yeah. what happened. Because I suppose that if a patient comes in and it's obviously had a trauma from, say, hemorrhage or a fracture, then I suppose the assessment is, is uh, a structured way of trying to work out, you know, the, the damage that has been done potentially. Whereas if it's an emergency for a, a different reason, let's say not an obvious trauma but something else, then if the animal is in distress at the time then it's then it's probably good to try and sort of separate out a little bit so you can talk to the client without them yeah having to panicking focus, too too on, much yeah. Yeah. and focusing on the patient yes i also find that the, the the presence of the pet can actually be a distractor for both yourself and the client so yeah definitely 
I think I think that's a that's a top tip, and I I don't, I don't actually know who told that to me, but it was definitely like you know when you're discharging something from a hospital, forget about an emergency sense. Talk to the client without the patient, because yeah. the moment you bring the patient into the room, then they're just yeah. focused on that, and as you said, they're not even listening yeah. anymore. So so no, that's a it's a, that, that's, but that's the, the same. You know, same as what we were talking about mm. before. Like, you need to listen. So, if you're listening to the client about what happened, yeah. you need to give them your attention. You can't be doing yeah, yeah, multiple absolutely. multiple things. I think that's gold. I think that's gold. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, and then our, our, our third thing was was analgesia. Yeah. The um, yes, it's an A, so it should be the first part of everything, because it's such a well. I mean, obviously we're there for our patients, isn't it? So analgesia is our duty. If we think it's painful, we need to give analgesia. The other thing is that we often overestimate the effect of analgesia on the patient clinical status. We think that we should delay the analgesia until the patient is walking and uh, like no longer in shock. We can actually start in a patient, for example, in shock with septic peritonitis or with hemoabdomen. They may be painful. Maybe you're not gonna, your first treatment is not gonna be methadone in an unstable patient or, or opioids. Uh, surely it's not gonna be non-steroidals. But um, you start with resuscitation and then I think as you start, you can start trickling in some some um, some analgesia at the lower dose and then you can go up as the patient gets more stable but uh, I mean unless again the patient is agonizing or um, uh, sorry is, is um, has an impending arrest or is extremely unstable that you can't feel the femoral pulses I think analgesia should be given concurrently with resuscitation um, and why? Because a lot of times, analgi- uh, like the, the clinical signs that we can see may be confounding. So tachycardia, in a patient with shock, what we think is tachycardia is due to shock. And so we'll keep on bolusing these guys over and over again because we want to bring their heart rate down. Maybe their heart rate down can be brought at the second bolus with a little bit of methadone rather than at the fourth bolus with a little bit of methadone. So it's, you know, it's... And, and the other thing, like, you know, the, the same thing for tachypnea or hypoventilation. Sometimes, uh, especially when there's abdominal pain, patients will tend to be tachypnic and hypoventilate potentially. And so and that can Im- actually improve the oxygenation. So you've got benefits physiologically and also medically because it actually you get rid of the pain as a confounder factor for your clinical findings and 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 hence in your improves the the transparency in the clinical management but then most of it is because again we've got the duty of making sure that our patients are comfortable first no matter what but it's definitely something that we can do not only we not only we should do but we can do and it and i think it gives us uh, time as well to try and you know control potentially the the, the pain that's going on whether it's presumed or, or actual we can try and say we're doing something not only to the patient but to the client we're trying to get things under control okay let's do that let's have a, a chat while we wait for that to be effective or before we give in anything more so it it does it does buy you a bit of time yeah. as well and and um and obviously help the the, the patient paramount para, you know in um essentially but also um you know it gives you a time to say okay we've do, done that with the client we've done that with your patient let's have a 
a chat about what's mm. going on or talk a bit a bit further about okay what's the what's the next step so i think it, it buys you it buys you valuable time but it's time well spent as well yeah okay yeah. see, see something that i was uh uh Su- su- suggesting say if we get to a point where we have assessed the patient we kind of know the history of what's been going on we've given some analgesia then i think that you know how are we going to come up with a with a plan so you can either come up with a plan or or i think that uh, and, and i i'd imagine that m- most people are the same i think books still exist right like we're i know we're in a in a you know well into 2018 but books still exist and they probably exist for a reason and and that is a, it's a just a collection of, of information that is kind of useful but an emergency textbook i think in most veterinary practices is essential because it gives you time to you know you might have to flick through like okay is you know check your plan but also if you're not quite sure about what to do then just look it up and have a reference that you're used to did yeah. you did you have a, a, a book oh, yeah, that yeah. you liked I mean, it's always difficult, isn't it? Because, like, if you're thinking about resuscitation, you probably don't want to read the resuscitation chapter as you are resuscitating. You probably there are certain things that you really need to know before. So, if you're doing it, I think as new graduates here in the UK, I'm finding that uh, many do, or, or some, a good, good, good number do actually emergency work. So, if you're doing it just before you start doing it. I think it's your duty to, to make sure that you know how to resuscitate a patient and the basics of that, oxygen administration, like how to manage widely. Then when we go into the diagnosis um, or, or a bit more complicated stuff, even, you know, like radiograph, um, <laughs> radiographic interpretation, books are there to learn. And I think it'd be a mistake to assume that... Um, um, that we know everything and we still read books over and over again <laughs> I think, uh, despite we've read it like we keep on reading them um, so <clears throat> I think there was that way of saying that like uh, who doesn't um, what is it who doesn't think can learn anymore has never learned anything something like this so um it's it's a lo- lifelong learning, and books definitely help us. The other thing is, you know, like uh, even colleagues can give you. I think when I find, I often find myself stuck, and and uh, uh, one of the main reasons is that I'm here at the RBC is because we've got such an amazing team, included you, obviously, leaded by you. Um, and it's really like, and, and so discussing about the cases with colleagues actually helps the management, clearing your mind and avoiding mistakes. And, and that's just, you know, collaborative learning and, uh, and, and decision-making as well. I think if you're open to any criticism or, or constructive feedback, that's probably the best way. I think, I think absolutely right that that uh, colleagues are around. I suppose it depends on what situation people find themselves in. But but colleagues are incredibly useful and and, and never feel uh, um, concerned about like asking someone for their ad- advice uh, regarding something. And I, and I think as well a, a big com- a big component that we um, we tend to be or can be quite complacent about is the experience that the nursing team have mm-hmm. in these situations in particular in any situation but you know the combined experience of the team is is the summation of everyone's uh, um, experience and that's equates to a number of years but but do utilize that and you know people might have seen it before and they might you know, you know 
it, it might help uh, guide um, people to you know appropriate things they might you know people might not know and say i'm not quite sure but i've seen people do this before and you could yeah. it might give people some some encouragement uh, absolutely good to see you know i, I suppose um uh, maybe a dinosaur with regards to to books but i think that having some uh body of information that you can you can look up it, you know particularly I, I agree with you you can't look up how you know draw the you know, dot to dot guide on on uh, what to do when patient x comes in you need to have some basic plan but at least if you get to a point you can say okay well what what can i read about about mm. this to to treat and and now you know i know there's uh, lots of different information um networks out there such as uh, the say the veterinary information network which i think is a, a a great resource as well but also um I, i'm sure we're both in different um social media groups that actually uh, talk about cases as well, which I think is a, a fascinating um, dynamic. I'm not quite sure how. Um, I'm not actually quite sure how beneficial that is to people. But you know, if people are re- remote, they might they might actually post a photo of of something, or I have this case, or explain this case. And in fact, that that happens on the uh, the ACVEC board as well, mm-hmm. doesn't it? But they, you know, posting that and saying like, what do we do? I suppose my the the question that I have about that is who is replying? You know that you know and and. Absolutely, you know, ninety-five percent. I'm sure are great, but maybe you know, maybe people don't know, and and so and I suppose so that's where it gets. Yeah. Well, it might, you know, it's a, it's questionable, uh, I suppose, mm-hmm. for for that. But I think that's an interesting um, resource that you you know, people are never never alone mm. as far as making decisions and and I, th- I think we and we still get a number of calls from from people with emergency cases uh and trying to you know work out what what they should do we you know get a number of advice calls whether emergencies or, or through different services you know you come to a yeah. point what do i do and i think that's that's you know where we all grow really that's yeah. where we all get uh information about what what we should do and also like it's you know stepping a little bit back um it's also something that is much needed i think especially if you're doing night shifts or weekend shifts i think after you start after your 10th hour uh, of shift i think you're probably going to be less uh, able to take decisions and to actually discern the right problem so i think yes consulting with someone else can actually help you getting a little bit of a of an idea because you, you're stuck literally with problems that you wouldn't have had f- like just thinking problems that you wouldn't have had four five hours earlier and so actually just having the um um don't know how to say it but but basically just being open to ask someone else and not feeling like a defeat but just literally asking what would you guys do and even just like we'll step back and think of this which may come from a colleague uh, from whether it's a nurse or a vet um can actually help a lot yeah you know i I think that it's a absolutely fantastic point i think it takes a a remarkable amount of self-awareness and i think it's very difficult when you start not not to say i i need help i think i think a lot of people are quite happy to say that but to say i'm not sure whether this is the right decision because either i'm tired or i've worked mm. hard and i'm a bit confused about x or y i think that i think that's a quite a difficult space to find people in you know i think i think it mm. i'm not i'm not sure how happy i am most of the time i think i've definitely thought about it uh, a, a few times to say you know to talk to to you or or uh, other colleagues not thought about it actually done and said run something by you because i'm not 
quite sure but i suppose you don't necessarily explain things well enough because it's a, i suppose it's um, a bit of a random conversation isn't it but i suppose we're quite in a collegiate environment so people talk about things the whole time but to actually say to someone i'm for whatever reason I'm tired or a bit unsure i'm not could you just run run by this yeah. is actually that'd be a, it's a very important thing yeah. to 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 do um because i think a lot of people might say oh the, you know there's someone just wanting to finish their shift or yeah. pass it on but actually they're not you know they might be you know we need to help support each other yeah and, and most of the times you know it's not a matter that we don't know things because if for that's this book is that we're not thinking at the things in the right way so actually speaking to someone else actually helps maybe approaching the case in a different way to which you were thinking it so definitely so um so with with that in an emergency sense as well so we just got a, a couple of things to finish even though i think we said five things but then but anyway uh, a couple of things to uh, to finish and one of the things i had is that to, to to calm yourself down because i suppose that in an emergency situation you're no good to someone if your heart rate's jacked mm. up you're um out of control yourself thinking what am i going to do and not in control of the situation so you need to consider your own physiology and that you can handle this, you can yeah. manage this situation. You know, you've been through how many years of, of education you've qualified to do this. You might, you definitely, you know, as we all do, need help at some point in time. But you can manage this situation. So, but you need to manage yourself paramountly. And do you, I, I obviously, I, I'm going to go straight in and say that uh, there's, there's a number of things that I list to uh, podcast way, but obviously, um, as I bored many people who would listen, that Scott Weingard and the MCRIT podcast is is, uh, is worth listening to people interested in, in emergency uh, um, work in, in, in people. But uh, a lot of things translate and it talks about things like tactical breathing and trying to control your own physio- physiology and that. So trying to actually just take a breath, and have a square breath cycle, so to breathe in for three seconds, hold for three seconds, and breathe out for three seconds, and uh, and pause for three seconds, and remarkably, you can control your own physiology. I, I muck around uh, with this sometimes, and my heart rate goes up when I'm on a uh, on a plane or something out of control. You know, when you're you, you're just automatically you know you drop. 50 feet whatever in a plane air turbulence your heart rate jacks up and i think can i control this and it does work like it's interesting doesn't it? obviously there's uh, i don't yeah well i think I, I i probably would have done this a lot more uh, when i when i started mm. off as as well but i think that it takes time to be uh, cognizant of the fact that you need to to control yourself yeah 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 do, do you have any any tips for for uh, not really i mean it's um i mean when I'm not all, uh, I'm really un- anxious when I I try to breathe. But as you say, like, I think it depends on the people. So to, for me, it doesn't work, but maybe I'm not doing it properly. Uh, maybe I'm doing it more the mindful way, you know, the more relaxed. And, uh, well, maybe I should get a little bit more of a, an aggressive respiratory control approach. I don't know. Um, but one thing that really calls me is getting out. Like just getting out of the room, I do realize if there is a cardiopulmonary arrest, <laughs> an unstable patient, you can't do that. Like you can't just leave the place. But if it's one of those situations where three people are asking you so so many things and you don't need to take a decision immediately, stat and 
it's just a matter of having to come out a little bit and calm yourself and clear your ideas. I find a lot like just getting a, an isolated place, which most of the times is outside and thinking at the things that you need to do and then giving the right priorities. So just getting out from everything that can distract me and thinking about what I need to do. I, I calm myself when I write, when I find myself, when I find a list of things that everything written in front of me. So this is what I can do what I need to do and at least I can give an order so I've got like some sort of homework list that's what makes me feel under control breathing wise again it, maybe I do it like I don't realize but on that side I think definitely thinking at maybe yes um, stepping back and thinking you can definitely do this because we can actually do do everything and if we can't there's probably a major reason that is out of our control which we can't control uh, and so just doing your best is probably the best thing that so it's pretty so for for the newer people uh into into this sort of game or dealing with emergencies it's it's more to de- you know just don't panic yeah. in that situation you can you can handle this and you know do you, if you find yourself getting anxious calm down if you're worried about you know making uh decisions then well, you know, give analgesia, give oxygen, give a bit of give a bit of time. Think about letting that ride for a bit, and then giving yourself space to think about things or phone a friend. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, um, and uh, and lastly, you, you had a, a great uh, a great comment. So, to give your patients the time mm. that they deserve. So, could you explain that? Not rushing things. The most common mistake... Well, the, the, the mistakes that I remember I did was because I was superficial. You know, those are the ones that you regret because those are the ones that you could have avoided and you didn't. And with the responsibilities that our profession carries, those are the mistakes that really burn you uh, because you realize, again, it's your fault. Like, it's not, it's not something that is beyond you. Like, it's your fault, that's it. And I think that well, what... The, the main mistakes were, you know, uh, I want to go home. Let's do this quickly. Uh, this patient is not well. Well, you know what? It's the night vet's problem. I'm going home tomorrow. I'm not even on. Who cares? That's the kind of negligent approach. Because actually that's the... It's kind of falls into... It. Negligence is a little bit of a big word. But ultimately what I would advise is if you're thinking you know, you're, you're getting out or you want to get out you still need to make sure that your patients have had all your attention. And so basically what we're discussing first is give, your, give, give to your patients the time they deserve, not the time that you can give them. Uh, and if that means, you know, it's, we always speak about quality of work-life balance, but if that means staying a little bit further or uh, dedicating them a bit more attention, well, they need it. One thing is... For example, if you can't stay with a patient for the two hours following your end of the shift, which no one will ask you, right? But at least make sure that you've handed over properly the, the, um, the case. And I think that's, that's what um, I regret from my previous years when I was less, um, you know, less experienced, is that I would exhaust myself, get to the point that I couldn't do it anymore, and then my, I wouldn't hand over the patient because I, thought I just wanted to do everything with my patient, not handing it over properly because I got to the point of the exhaustion and then the patient, my colleagues didn't know much about it and were questioning. So one thing is 
do your best if you if you dedicate all your time and when i say dedicate is thinking only at your patient don't dedicate time that you're thinking at you know what you're gonna eat tonight or where i can buy some truffles and just kind of he's a very italian centric uh... <laughs> that's what i think usually right like where are gonna get this truffle um, but um just at least in those cases so dedicate your time and your attention to the patients and then make sure that you can't stay there for 24 hours we all have to look ourselves so make sure that basically you hand over the patient very clearly with a with a with your colleagues even if it means stop one second let's make a plan together because that's ultimately how you optimize I mean, I think what you were uh, alluding to, I, mean, I suppose it's probably the, the term is like burnout when you're, when mm. you're uh, ex- exhausted either mentally or physically and you think you can't give the patient the time that you deserve. And, and that's where, um, I, you, you know, you're saying you, if you're thinking about other things or you want to get out there, you're tired, it's, it's probably that you're, you're, you're yeah. burnt out, you know, from, from, uh, from the amount of time that you've been there mm. or for a number of different things and probably we're not very good as a, a profession in recognizing that and knowing when we're um you know we, if we if we don't feel that we can give the patient the attention that deserves and maybe that's when we need to speak to colleagues and say mm. could could you help out here you know could you could you help see this sort of patient if 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 they exist or if not then you need to you need to work out with a because you're the emergency person that's on that time and you're being overwhelmed, I suppose you need to speak to your your yeah. colleagues, your bosses about that because it's probably not a good environment, not necessarily a good environment, not a good place to be in, not only for yourself but for your for your patients as well. If you think you can't give them the time, but we need to make sure that we we do give them that time when yeah. we when we when we see them that we they are the focus that we can get that clear. And also, as you, as you quite rightly pointed out, if if you're working in a multidisciplinary place or sorry not multidisciplinary working with a multi-vet place that you uh you you make sure that the um you hand over that that information yeah yeah absolutely absolutely i mean it's a big uh it's a big scary world but in a way it's it's not really is it no i think it can can be done it's just a matter of stepping back a little bit and i think that's what we all thought about in our in our I think all all of it that what we discussed, examining your patient, uh, listening to the patient, is all about really mindfulness. And so being, I mean, now it's not philosophical or anything, but just concentrate and be in the moment and be with your patient and with your client and thinking of what you're doing, making a plan, and then going and looking at some, reading something up for your patient and then using your team. So realize where you are and who you are with, and organize that. And I couldn't think uh, of I, a, <laughs> I couldn't think of a better way to uh, to end it. So we'll wrap it up there. And so much thanks for your time to get today, Stefan. I know you're a busy man under under duress, but but thank you very much. And and we'll get you back in. And uh, I always when I, when I have these conversations with you, I always think there's so much more we could uh, we could talk about and other things we should. So I'll uh, I'll give you more time to prepare next time. So <laughs> thank you. Though. Thank you again for listening and don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a, a review, five-star review, that would be great um, and I hope us get this information out to uh, people who would like to listen to it. Don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends or other friends and we'll place any show notes in the obviously pages so just to type in obviously clinical podcast in your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or 
suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or you can tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.